Well, it's wonderful to be in the study of God's Word. Take your Bibles and look at Luke 18 for a moment. We have, of course, looked last week at the way that the Lord ingeniously used an illustration that was happening right there in front of him as little children were being brought to him for a rabbinical blessing. You remember last week I titled the message, The Gospel According to Children, and this week I wanted to just look at it briefly and then move into a practical discussion on what it means to have that same attitude in the Christian life. The text here is talking primarily about the disposition that keeps you from the gospel, the kind of attitude that if you brought it to God is going to get you nowhere and which Jesus discusses here and has already, as you know, many times just strung together statements to that effect. You remember back in verse 14, this whole entire discussion is centered around what he said there. If you exalt yourself, you're going to be crushed. Your pride will be crushed. If you, if you take your own resources before God and act like it's good enough, it will be a humiliating experience at the judgment. But if you humble yourself, then, then there will be no judgment. You'll be exalted in the glories of heaven, even as David spoke about in Psalm 21. But then we saw this little scenario unfold where infants were being brought and small children. Luke describes it here as often brand new children, newborns. And they were being brought to Jesus and the disciples, you remember, were not focused on the right thing. They missed the illustration, which can often happen with those who love Christ. We, we miss what the Lord is doing in someone's life because we're focused on limited things, selfish things, sometimes prideful things. And as was the case here, they, they tried to rebuke families for bringing children to Jesus, you remember. But the Lord was not sending these burdened parents away. He was telling the disciples, bring them and, and their infants and their small children. And he was welcoming them. Why? Because he was looking past what was happening physically and even past the rabbinical blessing upon the child and these families and the comfort they would receive. He was, he was looking at it as an analogy for how a person actually gets into the kingdom. And it was to be another object lesson for the crowds whom he knew would try to come some other way. Try to come to Christ, try to come to salvation, try to get heaven, try to get the kingdom, some other path than what God requires. And so we saw that he was welcoming the kids and when they were with him, these little infants often at times. You remember verse 17, he said, listen up, truly I say to you, this is something you should hear, this is a principle you can count on, this is divine truth, this is inflexible, unassailable, truly I say this to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child, if you don't welcome the kingdom of God like a child welcomes the the motherhood in front of it, the one upon whom it depends for everything. If you don't come to the Savior the way that an infant looks up at its mother in hope, in dependence, in humility, in trust, blind trust, 
If you don't come like that, you, he says, shall not enter it at all. I mentioned to you last time that Jesus had said this on occasion and the gospel risers record it. Matthew 18, verse 3, he said, unless you turn, unless you turn and become like children. In other words, the, the adulthood you're familiar with is an analogy of a sophisticated life. You're not a child anymore. You think like an adult. You're sophisticated. You're advanced. But unless you turn back in the spiritual sense to that time when you weren't so sophisticated and everything was just utter dependence and helplessness and reaching out to the one upon whom you must depend. Unless you turn and become like that, you're not getting to heaven. And so that is what Jesus is doing here. And you remember, this is no surprise to go here in the conversation as in God's providence, the circumstances are unfolding because you remember he just told a parable about the very thing. We, we saw the Pharisee in all of his pride and we saw the outcast over there off to the side. And he is like the small child. He's coming saying, I am nothing. I need you. Will you be merciful? I don't know what to do. I must have your answers. We understand why Jesus then uses infants. An infant is the most vivid expression of this very idea. Total helplessness. Brings nothing. Has no uh, sense of its own assessment of things either. An infant's ignorant of life and implications of what's happening to it. It just, by, by the sheer nature of being a human and being utterly helpless, reaches out for whatever and whomever's there. And often as they grow into their little toddlerhood, they get into dangerous things because they are that ignorant and don't understand the implications. Becomes a very appropriate analogy for the helpless state of someone in sin who needs the hope of a savior. And so we boiled it down last week at the end to these two principles. I mean, the Christian life really isn't massively complex when you think about it. The outcast in the house of prayer, by analogy, like an infant being brought in helplessness, is humble, humbled by the circumstances. And so Jesus says a person that comes to Christ must not come exalting anything about who they are and who they think they are. You can't meet your own need. That's how you come to Christ. I cannot meet my own need. My need is desperate. It is eternal. I am going to perish. It will be forever. It will be under the wrath of Almighty God who is perfectly holy. That is my need. And I can't meet it on my own like an infant who doesn't even dare to try to put together something on its own. It's utterly incapable of thinking such a thing. What does an infant do? It openly receives its mother. Jesus says you need to openly receive the Savior as the only one who can meet that deep need. And then there's the faith element, trusting not in yourselves, but, but in the only life-giving source for the soul. That was the analogy. There was humility pictured in the infant. There was trust in, in that picture of the infant coming. That's what Jesus says it means to be coming as a child, and no one is saved without it. So that is why so often in the ministry of Jesus, the issue of pride got ramped up. 
This is why you, you have four gospel accounts, four narratives of the life of Christ. And over and over, and sometimes even at a crescendo point, though they could have included countless other stories about the ministry and life of Jesus, they wrote, on the other hand, stories about Israel's pride and unbelief. They're all over the Gospels. And we have seen that in the study of Luke's Gospel. You get to chapter 4, he goes into the synagogue as the teacher for that day to read the scriptures and he says the scriptures right here in Isaiah are being fulfilled in your hearing and Israel tries to throw him out to his death off a cliff. They completely miss their Messiah because of pride. By the time you get to chapter 7 he's in a Pharisee's house by invitation and the Pharisee is invited in there under prideful pretense and in comes a former prostitute who who's been forgiven by Christ and she can't wait to worship him and she just ignores all the, un, the indignity of coming into that dignified room and just worships Christ. But did Simon worship Christ? No. Again, pride. So Jesus in Luke 9 calls for the crucified life. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow me. Don't follow yourself. Don't even imagine that you could bring anything to this great work. And what happened in the same chapter in Luke 9? The disciples had an argument over who among them was the greatest. Pride. The pride of religious hypocrisy is seen in chapter 10 and chapter 11. And pride blinds men to the truth, chapter 12. Hypocrisy again is exposed in Luke 13. Then they wanted the praises of men at a banquet in, four, in chapter 14. They didn't take God at his word, chapter 16. They got between souls that needed Christ and the gospel. Pharisees and, and proud people inserted themselves right between Christ and a needy soul. And he warns about that in chapter 17. And he says, you have an attitude of entitlement. And then here in this chapter, it is ramping up again. And he tells a parable and then uses the child as an illustration. You see, he knows that we're born proud and a proud self-exalting heart does not re receive Jesus in helplessness and as if Christ is the only source and the only hope, like an infant humbly reaches to its mother. You say, no, pastor, I, I'm saved, I'm redeemed, I came to Christ that way. That's how I got saved, that's right. But now what? Now what? We still have to deal with unredeemed humanity and, and we still have to think about the humility and faith illustrated in an infant and we're still called to live in that same way. Look for a moment at Philippians chapter, four, uh, chapter 2, rather. Philippians 2, just for a moment to introduce a, a very practical discussion on this issue. Philippians chapter 2, you have here this discussion of Christ, but right at the beginning he says, I don't want you to do anything from selfishness, verse 3, or empty conceit. I don't want you to be contentious, battling for your own position and preeminence and significance. That's literally that verbal idea there. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Don't be battling for your own preeminence. Don't do anything from contentiousness for your own position. But do the opposite. 
With humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Man, we know right then and there the battle. This is difficult. Lord, you mean in every context? Yes. You mean in my marriage? Yes. You mean with my children? Yes. You mean with my in-laws and relatives that get difficult? Yes. You mean with co-workers and, and a government that cheats us? Yes. You mean with the people in the church who irritate me and sometimes make me angry and sometimes sin greatly against me? You mean in those contexts, all those contexts? You mean I'm to, I'm to look at others as more important than myself? And as I look out for my own interests, my, my personal life, verse 4 admits, I am also to, uh, to look out for the interests of others. I can't focus only on the, the everyday natural way that I, I have to groom myself and look to my ways and my finances and those things. I'm not to merely stay in my zone. I'm to look after the interests of others. Why? Because this was the attitude in Christ Jesus. Humility. After we're redeemed, we, we clutter the humility and faith illustrated in an infant, the trust and the, the humble disposition illustrated by this little child. We're supposed to have that even as a Christian ongoing and growing in our life. And yet we go back and drift into more sophisticated Christianity that isn't so believing and trusting in God, that isn't so humble and self-deprecating. And yet there it is right in front of us. Our Savior humbled himself and he called us to have the same attitude. Our Lord trusted completely in his Father's will. He submitted his heart to all his Father told him to accomplish and we're to do the same. Soul, our walk with Christ every day on a, on a daily basis just isn't all that complex. A thousand battles to be sure. Maybe there's complex levels to these battles and it, we wouldn't ever treat someone's difficulty with simplistic answers or solutions from God's word. But the daily life of a Christian isn't all that complex when you boil it down. There are all kinds of fronts to battle on, but the goal is simple. Strive to grow in grace by practicing more humility and trusting the Lord more faithfully. Sometimes you come to a discipler or someone that's been a Christian longer. You come to a pastor in the church or some older Christian and you say, I, I've tried everything you've said. And you keep giving me the same answers. <laughs> and we want to say, because there are no more answers. You have what God has given and said by it, you can grow. Our walk with Christ every day, though peppered with weaknesses and sinful tendencies, is to steadily increase in steadfast trust and the humility of Christ. These are kingdom attitudes. You won't enter the kingdom without them, and you won't have a, an abundant arrival into the kingdom if you don't strive to live them here and now, and humility and faith we talk about all the time because those are the twin qualities of the most powerful and blessed Christian life. And so I like to boil things down to simple statements. Here, here they are. Humility sees yourself rightly, right? It's Romans 12, 3. 
I want each one to never have more high of an opinion that he ought to have, but he ought to think to it so as to have sound judgment about himself. And Galatians 6 said, if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. And 1 Corinthians 3 indicates that whatever you do in ministry or life, you're just an instrument in the hands of God. The instrument itself isn't anything. It's the power of God that makes the difference. And in John chapter 7, we're told that, that we can do nothing apart from Christ. Humility sees yourself rightly, and faith relies on God exclusively. Humility sees self rightly, and faith relies on God exclusively. And if these are the two areas we ought to really then see as the central focus of our growth in Christ, then, then we have something to talk about now especially as it relates to the analogy Jesus used. He didn't want you to come to Christ as in the disposition of a helpless child and then go back to a sophisticated way of living the Christian life whereby pride starts to grow, whereby faithlessness starts to grow, distrust and doubt. So for the rest of our time this morning, we're going to get very practical here. And then next week, we're going to work on the issue of the, the growth of our faith side of it though there is much overlap. But here I want to just talk about the whole matter of growing in humility. You know, it's interesting how in the church, in certain eras, there have been significant uh, times of dumbing down the truth. If you go back and you read the 19th century battle that Spurgeon faced in the Baptist Union, for example, and in Anglicanism at the same time in Europe, they, called, they named it the downgrade controversy, and you go back and read accounts of it, and it was, it was a way of describing what was happening to the church. It was a slow boil. It was a, it was a leak. The church walls were porous. Unbelievers started to come in. Errors started to come in. The people in the church began to get comfortable and relaxed, and pride began to rise, and humility began to go by the wayside so that no one wanted to talk about sin the way the Bible talks about it anymore. And no one wanted to call a spade a spade. And no one wanted to say who's in and who's out. And so pretty soon the, the weakness became prolific and generational and the church died. In fact, it is fascinating to read those pieces of history because of how short a time it took. If you get to, if you look at the the period in England and in Europe from about 1745, 1750, it was dark, it was terrifying, and there, there was no real Protestantism, no gospel, no faithfulness in any massive pocket. There were Christians all over the place, but there was no widespread emphasis or testimony on Christ. And, and there were about six or seven obscure preachers who didn't likely know much about each other, and they preached the truth of Scripture, and God began to do a work. And you read what was in Europe, in, in England, particularly in 1850, 100 years later, and the whole country is a testimony for Christ. 100 years of faithful gospel preaching. But the downgrade happened so that you looked at Europe in 1950 and it's dead. Probably was dead about 40 years after, after the mid-1800s. Long about the turn of the century, it was dying already. Why? People were not 
calling things what the Bible calls them. Preaching was not faithful to just expound the meaning. Shepherding went by the wayside. People began to let pride grow and humility went by the wayside. They didn't believe God. They started questioning the scriptures. And this is exactly how Satan does it. And if you're saying, well, pastor, you're not describing the mid-1700s, mid-1800s, mid-1900s. You're describing today. That's right. We are in a massive downgrade. We're called to be the kind of Christians that are so recognizable by our striving to grow in Christ-likeness, which includes humility and trust in our God. We're called to be such bright lights that in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, Philippians 2, we appear as bright lights that cannot be squelched, dimmed, or muted. How do we begin this? How do we grow in humility? Well, first of all, you're going to know when you're being proud. You've got to know when you're being proud, okay? <laughs> There's some difficulties with this very practical aspect of it. First of all, Proverbs 16.5 says this. Everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Now, of course, his people aren't condemned, so we're not an abomination. But it does tell you that pride itself is an abomination to the Lord. He hates it. It is the very first sin. It is to rise up to the creator. It is to say, I will rule. It is to say the creator needs to come off his throne because he's not who he says he is. It is to defy God. God knows that. He'll have to destroy it. He wants to rescue from it. And when he saves you from it, he doesn't want you going on living as if it wasn't important to keep throwing it off. Why? Because you got to call it what it is. Listen to the strong language. Everyone who's proud in heart is an abomination. Listen, not only can we be blind to pride, but we are influenced by a culture which casts it as justified, if not a virtue. Pride and boasting and arrogance and stepping on people and forming your views and shoving them down people's throats and running over the top of people and getting vengeance and taking your revenge. These are not only justified because of people say what others have done to me, but they are considered now virtues in our culture. And anything less than that, oh, you don't retaliate, you're not going to take that person down, you're not going to go after that person, you're not going to shame them on the internet, you're going to join, not going to join in our dog pile, you're weak. You're weak. You say, is that in the church? Oh, the church is fueling this all the time. How do we do it? What the scriptures blatantly call pride, we don't call pride. The way that the Bible speaks about it, and we should. If you want to grow in humility, you must first know when you're being proud. And the only way to know when you're being proud is to see it as the scriptures describe it. We don't want to think enough about what the scriptures say about it. Amy Carmichael once said, those who think too much of themselves don't think enough. <laughs> that is so profound. You ought to think more carefully about who you are and who God is, or you're not going to know when you're being proud. You're not going to live in the 
helpless dependence and, and trust that a child represents. In fact, the book of Proverbs in Proverbs 26, 12 says, if you see a man wise in his own eyes, there's more hope for a fool than him. It's interesting. Fool is, is a very defined category in the wisdom literature of the Old Testament, and a fool has no hope. A fool blindly goes wherever he goes. He, he destroys his life, ruins other people's lives, is carried off into everything, has no filter, completely without moral, um, any kind of restraint or grid or discernment. And Proverbs says, if you're wise in your own eyes, there's more hope for that guy than there is for you. That's how difficult a destructive force to the human soul pride is. Well, we have to see it for what it is. We have to see how it manifests itself in our lives. Jesus said, I want humility to reign. I don't want pride to reign. Now, you could formulate all kinds of practical lists. I've written several, and we've talked about them over the years in our studies of Scripture. We've even seen it four or five different times in different series in the book of Luke. I mean, this subject, just the Lord brings it up again and again, and with Israel as a backdrop, it, it gets to be a pretty constant theme. But I like getting hold of practical lists that tell us how pride manifests itself so that we know when we're being proud, because otherwise we, we can be blind to it. Blindness, by the way, spiritual blindness is, the, is double the problem. Because if you excuse pride, um, you're, you're doubling up on your pride because pride itself is a sin and then to excuse it is more pride. So it's double the problem. So we know we can be blind to it. So I need to have it described to me. I need to know what behaviors make it clear that, it, that it's pride. Otherwise, I will redefine it. I will downgrade the definition of it. And if I'm influenced by the culture, well, I mean, I can make myself better than the culture any day of the week and yet still be full of pride, even the pride that says I'm better than the culture. I can be prone to excuse and blame shift as we can as Christians, and so that makes it imperative that I know when I'm being proud by God's definition. And I'll add even one more reason why it's important to define things biblically. Because repentance is the only way to see the power of God help you forsake a particular sin that is plaguing your life. Listen, we often grieve over pride's destructiveness in relationships, but we don't necessarily always repent and forsake it. Pride is a grieving thing. Pride is a grieving thing in parenting and in children and in marriage and at work and, and in academics and in your skills and hobbies and the things you love and life itself, family life, relationships with friends. Pride is insidious and ugly and destructive, but we may even see how it's defined and grieve over it and yet too proud to actually say what God says about it and forsake it. So because we can be blind to it, because we're influenced by the culture and often the church fuels it and we're prone to blame shift and shallow repentance can result, then we need to know when we're being too proud. So maybe a little practical list will help. One of my favorites, I don't know if you've my dear friend Stuart Scott wrote a book, The Exemplary Husband. In it, he has a section on pride and humility, and that became a little booklet. How many of you have it from Pride to Humility? 
How many of you have dust on it? <laughs> Bring me a dog-eared copy of it with all of the sweat from your thumbs on it. And I'll believe you might have really dug into that thing. That's a hard little 12 to 15 pages to go through. Very difficult. But in there, he has a list of manifestations of pride. And I, I cannot get over that list. These will not be unfamiliar to you. You could have made the list. Stuart just has enough grace and humility and usefulness to, to put them down and then say this is, this is his own art at times. Let's talk about it. First on that list in that little booklet is the manifestation of pride that, that complains against God or passes judgment on God. Complaining against God or passing judgment on God is a manifestation of pride. Call it whatever you want by some other name. You can't get away from the fact that this is a proud heart. God, you haven't given me what I think I deserve. God, you, you haven't done for me uh, all that I've earned. God, you are not caring. Or how about, God, your word isn't the way I would like it to be. It doesn't say what I'd like it to say. It doesn't define what I'd like it to define. It's not as clear as I'd like it to be. It leaves tensions doctrinally that I don't like. Look for a moment very quickly at the book of Romans chapter 9, and I'll illustrate this. Because the Apostle Paul anticipated the pride of our hearts in passing judgment on God. Romans 9. By the way, as a side note, I wish they'd make an app for when you're looking for scriptures on your device, the page sound happens. Because <laughs> when I tell you to turn to the scriptures, there's like three Bibles in the room, actual Bibles, with ink on a page. <laughs> and everybody else is just, <laughs> and it's right there. Anyway, somebody wants to invent that app, it might be lucrative. <laughs> I mean, this is absolutely amazing how Paul brings this up. He's talking about Jacob and Esau from the Old Testament, illustrating how God made an election, a choice, before they were even born. And verse 14, they, he says, what are we going to say about this? There's no injustice with God, is there? May it never be, because he even said to Moses, I have mercy on whom I have mercy and compassion on whom I have compassion. So it doesn't depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. He's absolutely sovereign over his moral universe. And he knows what you're going to say because of the tension of that. Verse 19, you're going to say to me, well, then why does he still find fault for who resists his will? And I know you're going to get into a university class or you're going to get into some Bible study and somebody's going to be studying this verse and we're going to go on and on in answer to that question to try to explain to you why there's tension, where this tension stops and what God doesn't resolve and what he does resolve. That's how we treat this question, but it isn't how Paul treats it. Paul says, on the contrary to that very question, well, who resists his will? How does he still find fault? If it's a moral universe in which I'm responsible for choices, free choices as a moral agent, then how is it that he can say he's absolutely sovereign over all of it? If there's mystery and tension in that, I don't like it, and I don't think God should have done that that way. And Paul says, on the contrary, who 
Are you, O man, who answers back to God? And he pulls the prophet's analogy of the potter and the clay into the text. The thing molded won't say to the molder, why'd you make me like this, will it? How absurd is that? Doesn't the potter have the right over the clay to make whatever he chooses to make? Who are you? O man, a finite being. Listen, the Bible is clear. It is pride that sits in judgment on God and his revelation and his world. I know you have a giant intellect, some of you. I know you've thought about these things and maybe written about them and maybe you've solved some of the tensions in your own mind and helped others solve them and resolve them and gone as far as the scriptures go. But you beware of what goes on in your heart. You didn't resolve revelation. Complaining against God can be as simple as, I, I don't like, Lord, the trial you're taking me through or the amount of time it takes or, or how it's going or what kind of, you didn't think about what I could take and what I can't. It can go from that all the way to, I don't like the way you revealed things in Scripture. The Bible says it's pride. Look what God did to me after all I've done for him. Passing judgment on his word, passing judgment on his ways. That leads to a second one which is put on Pastor Scott's list, ingratitude. He says this, proud people usually think they deserve what is good. <laughs> oh, the result is they see no reason to be thankful for what they receive. As a matter of fact, they may even complain because they think they got the short end. They deserve better. They tend to be discontent. You say, is, is discontentment pride, Pastor? Yes. Yes, you don't want to call it pride, but it's pride. And then the list just kind of progresses from there. Angry people, patterns of outbursts of anger or withdrawing or even self-pitying or frustration. A, a proud person is an angry person quite often. Why? Because my rights and my expectations aren't being met. It's pride. You say, I just thought it was anger. I just thought it was passion. I'm a passionate person. Well, maybe so, but your passions out of control and sinning are pride. Two kinds, really. The pride that says, I have a right to express it the way I want to express it. And then the pride that says, I can justify it. I can express it on people in a harmful way, and then I can justify it. Why? A fourth expression, you see yourself as better. Pride sees oneself as better than others. Proud person is usually on top looking down on others. Little tolerance for differences. This was Simon the Pharisee in Luke 7. Well, if Jesus knew what kind of woman this was, he wouldn't be letting her touch him. And what did Jesus say of him? You know why you love little? Because you don't think you've been in need of forgiveness very much. You think you're better than others. And sometimes that is a very specific expression of pride that manifests itself in an inflated view of your abilities and your gifts. Not just that you're better intrinsically than others and deserve their honor and respect while you have little tolerance for their differences, but what about your abilities? What about your giftedness? What about your talents? Significance and importance 
are the things we often feed, and yet 1 Corinthians 4, 7 says, what do you have that, that you didn't get from God? What do you have that you got on your own? I mean, we are given life, and we're given abilities, and we can think and reason. We're given opportunities. The common grace of God is given even to unbelievers as the rain falls on the just and the unjust. We're given people and relationships and then God redeems us through no part of our own he just moves upon us in his grace grants us everything in salvation it's his work from start to finish and he promises eternity and then we go back into our relationships as if it was somehow for our significance and yet what does Psalm 8 say O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. What is man that you're mindful of him or the son of man that you take thought of him? I mean, rhetorically speaking, just answer the question. Man is nothing. He's the creator. He created us. You don't get to say, yes, but intrinsically, I am worth all this. We got so confused about that in the pop psychological world of the last 30, 40 years. Do you know how much you're worth? Jesus stretched out his arms and he died. Listen, make no mistake, beloved. He did not die because we were worth it. He gave his life for enemies who were not worth it. That's why it is such a love that is indescribable. He did it because he is worth it. He is worthy, and his love is that profound. It is that rich. I know why we gravitate toward the other view, but it isn't a biblical view. It's a view that dumbs down real humility and grace and attempts to insert some sort of intrinsic human value and significance in there. Oh, we're valuable to one another. Absolutely. We're equals. We should never curse human beings when we're the same. But God is the only worthy, worthy person. When we think we're better than others, it's pride. When we think we're given gifts and abilities by God so that we can become important, it's pride. Or how about you say, well, I don't, I, I don't have any gifts and abilities. I don't, I don't really think I'm much at all. Did you know that self-pity is a form of pride? It is. You focus on what you don't have. You focus on not lowliness uh, because Christ is worthy, but lowliness because, after all, I, I didn't get what everyone else got. I, I can't be what everyone else is. Why are you focused on other people and your comparison with them? Just look to what God has given you and rejoice. He knows what he's doing. He doesn't make mistakes. He doesn't make any mistakes. Now, when I was raising my kids, I... I wanted them so to understand that how they're made and the way God made them, the way he made them look, the way he gave them intelligence, the level he gave them, whatever it may be by human comparisons, it only matters that they go before God and rejoice in being made by him and given life by him and opportunities by him and even the grace of, of the natural world to show them there's a creator whom they must respond to and then the grace of the gospel in our home to tell them about their need. They're worried about 
Everything we worry about in our pride, oh, I'm not pretty enough, I'm not thin enough, I'm not smart enough. We just self-pity. It's all pride. If you don't confess that stuff as pride, you're going to fuel it and feed it and excuse it. And by the time you put 20 years on it, that's going to be very hard for a disciple to, to help you see it. God help you if you do that for decades. Self-pity is pride. How about a few more? <laughs> Man, Stuart Scott, I'm going to invite him here. You can talk to him about it. Because this list is just relentless. How about people who think they're so important that they talk too much about themselves? They talk all the time about themselves. Every conversation leads to their abilities, their knowledge, what they know, their personal qualities, their accomplishments. They don't rejoice really in what other people do, and even if they do, it's just a launching point to talk about themselves. God gives us wonderful things in terms of talents and gifts and skills, and praising one another for them is a sweet thing. We should thank others for their faithful use of gifts and talents and it's right for us to do that anyway because it's humble to say to someone, you, you really blessed me with your sacrifice and the way God's made you is really a wonderful thing and I appreciate that. That's the right thing to do. But when you're looking at yourself or what other people say about you and all the strengths that you have and every conversation is a way to lead into that, the Bible just says it's pride. It is pride. We are not to think like that. Proverbs 27, verse 2, warns us of talking about ourselves and bragging about our personal accomplishments all the time. Watch that one. It's more subtle sometimes. Some people are just outgoing. They say, well, I'm just talkative. Well, maybe. Maybe that is wonderfully how God wired you. But even talking too much can indicate that you think what you have to say is more important than what anybody else has to say. And you don't become a good listener. That's why Proverbs 10, 19 says where there are many words, sin is eventually around the corner. Because even too much talking could indicate just pride in the heart. You love to hear yourself talk. We fall into that, don't we? Yeah, we do. How about just independent-mindedness? Seeking independence. I don't, I don't find it easy to be under or submit to any authority. I'm not talking about the general resistance to authority that is in the sin of our human heart, but someone who has a pattern has to be their own person, has to not conform. They're rigid and stubborn and headstrong and intimidating whenever someone talks about conformity. Can I just assure you of something? The scriptures say that Christians are predestined to be conformers. Did you know that? predestined to be conformed to Christ, you are not going to stay humble if all you think about is how much you want to be unlike everybody else and individual and distinct and set yourself apart and it's my talent and even my fashion and even my, my personality. I'm going to set myself apart from everyone else. The Bible doesn't talk like that. The Bible says you're to live a quiet and tranquil life and subdue all of that and don't lift any of that up. That's not, that's not important. What's important is Christ-likeness, godliness, 
purity, holiness, righteousness, so that as we come together, we see each other as individuals saved by the Savior, but we come together looking more and more like Him in our moral life, which is what? Humble. Humility. Being consumed with what others think, that's pride. Continual pursuit of gaining the approval and esteem of others. Oh, this is so much a problem. We are so afraid of a negative perspective of us. And so it's two sides of it. One, we're constantly trying to vie for the esteem of somebody else so we can feel good about us. We're men pleasers rather than God pleasers. Galatians 1.10 warns about that. And on the other side of it, we're devastated by a critique. Absolutely devastated by a critique. I, I don't want to know that someone thinks I have a weakness and I want to hide it and mitigate it and minimize it. It's all pride, the Bible says, just all pride. Can't accept who you really are, a sinner. You're going to have weaknesses. You're going to fail. You cannot establish a life without exposure or embarrassment. You cannot. Your sin is probably more obvious to others than it is to you anyway. And we have Christ to cover our sin and help us. But if you're obsessed with trying to make sure no one ever sees that, you've you got pride, which leads to unteachableness. You can't seem to learn anything from anybody. Proud individuals know it all. They can't learn anything. I sometimes find it fascinating when you're at a conference and, or you're in church or you're teaching or there's somebody instructing or there's a discipleship going on. You can tell sometimes, even by body language, people in the room who want to send the message, you can't teach me anything. I already know all this. I already got this. This is for all these people. I'm here to help them get this. That's what I'm here for. It's a review for me. People have actually said that to me. Thanks for the review. Okay. I'm glad it was a review. I'll try to get deeper next time. <laughs> Unteachable. How about unkindness? That's pride, isn't it? Always raising yourself up above others so that you can cut them down, belittle them. That's a hard one because sarcasm is a part of our close relationships. That's fun, the banter of those kind of things. We find little things on one another and we, yeah, that's just fun in relationships, but it can go too far, can it not? Sometimes we, there are people we don't like and so we, we just rather relish in hurtful things, degrading things. Son kindness, the Bible says we're not to be like that. Proverbs twelve eighteen says that very thing. Not to be hurtful or degrading, unkind. That's pride. You know that pride expresses itself as well in not serving in the church, not serving God's people in any way. There are people who sit on the fringes, and the reason they do is because they tried, they got burned. That's pride, beloved. That's all it is. I know, sure you've been burned. Nobody's denying that. We're sinners. We're going to burn each other sometimes. And sometimes it's just there's no reward. I mean, you serve and, you know, somebody else took credit for what I did and I got burned so badly because nobody cared. I was in the back room. Nobody ever said thank you. I didn't get enough uh, people recognizing that I was serving. So I just stopped. This is pride. There's so many others here. I'll just give a few more obvious ones. Defensiveness is obviously pride. Pride. 
You may have to explain yourself. People do misrepresent us at times, but a blame-shifting heart is pride. We saw that in Genesis 3. Lord, the woman that you gave me, oh, I, I listened to the snake. The snake tempted me, and I ate. It's always blame-shifting and defensiveness, trying to explain away our sin. This is pride. Let's call it what it is. We don't like to admit when we're wrong. Let's call it what it is. A proud person makes excuses. And then a proud person doesn't ask forgiveness. Can I just tell you that if we don't keep calling this what it is when we don't confess and seek forgiveness, we are in severe trouble in our Christian life. If there are, if your spouse or your children or your grandchildren or your closest friends could ever say to you, you know, you never seek forgiveness. You never admit to me that you are wrong and you never seek my forgiveness. If they can say that, you have pride you have to get at because it's pride. We're to confess our sins to one another. We're to hum humble ourselves before others when they have an offense against us. We're to forgive them, Matthew 5, 23, 24. How about a lack of Prayer, prayerlessness. Proud people don't pray. Why do they need to pray? They're self-sufficient. Man, we've got to work on that. We drift into prayerlessness often, which is self-reliance. It's another expression of pride. Disrespect for authority. Oh, so glad we don't have that problem. Let's move on. <laughs> Disrespect for authority. It's a way of life in our culture. And yet it's pride. Plain and simple. We're never to disrespect authorities. They are governed and given by God. We cannot detest being told what to do. We have a pride problem if we spend our days chafing at authority. God's word eventually will get the brunt of it and you will chafe at the authority of God. And listen, if you don't submit to scripture, you'll submit to no one. And nothing. Pastor Stuart Scott puts one in here that gets very practical. Voicing preferences and opinions when not asked. Again, so glad we're over this. This is pride. We don't typically call it pride. Hey, those are my preferences and my opinions. I have a right. I can share these. But they're usually voiced, he says, without consideration for others. We're to consider others as more important than ourselves. So you might have preferences and opinions. We all do. There's nothing sinful per se about a, a neutral or morally neutral opinion. It's just a thing. It's just an opinion. But when you voice them all the time, over the top of people, regardless of context, you are expressing pride because you think that you matter and no one else does. You may not have that thought go through your mind, but that's how you behave. Jealousy and envy, it's pride. 1 Corinthians 13, 4, it's not loving to be jealous or envious, but it's pride. Proud people have a hard time being glad when other people succeed. They have a hard time loving people through their idiosyncrasies. That means impatience and irritability with others is pride. Yes, when someone steps on your schedule and your plans, even pulls into your lane in front of you. 
Obviously, lying is pride. To cover up sins, faults, and mistakes is pride. Trying to get attention, attention-getting tactics, <laughs> we do that. And even um, last on his list was not having any close relationships because you don't need people. Keep everybody at arm's length, no risk. The scriptures are clear. You're to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Disciple one another. Be in each other's lives. God's going to put people in your lives that are really close proximity, from family to friends to Christians in the church. Other people will be at a little bit uh, greater distance from you, but in the church, we're all about relationships and interacting. And even 1 Peter 3 says you're to enter into people's experiences and in harmony with them, you're to come into their sorrows and their joys and enter into their emotional struggles through all that stuff. That is how we're to be, harmonious, sympathetic, of one mind, of one heart. We're in each other's lives. You, it is pride to not have close relationships. You are self-preserving. And that is to say God didn't know what he was doing when he gave you people. And that you don't have to give yourself away. Listen, you do. You're a living sacrifice. You give your life away. That's what it's for. Do you know how you grow in humility? You know when you're being proud. And to know when we're being proud, we have to look at it the way the Bible speaks it and just keep that in front of us, beloved. Why? Because we're blind to it. We're influenced by the culture. The church often fuels it. We're prone to excuse it. And our repentance sometimes is shallow. So, next Sunday morning as we move into the area of growing our faith, we want to first talk about measuring ourselves by the Lord Jesus. So we're going to take these areas that we have to think about now, these practical expressions of pride and a host of others, and we're going to measure ourselves by the Lord Jesus. You have to know when you're being proud, and to know when you're being proud and then know the depth of its offense, we have to look at the Lord. When you look at the Lord, both in his in his life and in his ministry, his heart and in his obedience. When you look at his incarnation and his submission and his humiliation and his substitution and his resurrection and his exaltation, you cannot help but keep the clearest view of what is humility in front of you. Bow with me. Lord, thank you for your grace in what you've done in the lives of those who are in the body and who help us with practical lists that associate with passages where you've described pride point blank and how the scriptures are tethered in, in one passage linking to another one and the illustration Jesus gives of a child and kingdom life is linked with so many other ways that you've told us to, to be humble and to be believing to trust you and and to not be proud. Lord, we are at times just like Isaiah when he said, I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. And I've seen the Lord of hosts. We are a people of pride. We're people in a culture and even a church culture at times that's so filled up with these things because we've dumbed them down. We don't want to look at them. Lord, please forgive us. Do a work of repentance in our hearts. May we see it rightly. 
and help each other with it. And help us to put ourselves up against Scripture, against the standard given by our sweet Lord who humbled himself. And he walked in your will, trusting his heavenly Father. May we see ourselves rightly and trust in you exclusively. We pray for your glory's sake. Amen.